Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, progress through problems. Progress through problems. Uh, we all would like to know how we make progress through problems, right? So we're going to be tackling that topic tonight, Philippians chapter 1. And we're, our jumping off point is actually going to be the prayer because it's going to link us to the section ahead. So would you join me as we pray the scripture? Here's what it says. Philippians 1.9 says, This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God and all God's people said, Amen. Now, if you were with us last week, I told you that the language in here about knowledge is a intensified form of the Greek word gnosis, which means a really precise knowledge. And we talked about going to depths with our walk with Jesus and so forth. But part of what we struggle with as individuals, and we all would say this, I think, if we were all interviewed, is this. How do we discern circumstances as well as depth of knowledge. We all, we all want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's certainly true. But how do we discern Paul the Apostle who planted the Philippian church in prison right now? If you're the servant girl at Philippi who got delivered from a demonic spirit by the Apostle Paul, by the power of Jesus, but through Paul, if you're the... Um, if you're Lydia, seller of purple fabrics, first convert in Europe, and all of a sudden you hear that the Apostle Paul has been thrown in to some form of Roman imprisonment, you have to be asking, Lord, how do we understand such things? And, and the question walks itself out to the things that happen in our contemporary world and culture, a war in Ukraine, uh, you know, that's the latest thing, but you know, over the last couple of years, it's been this thing that, you know, has now come this uh, COVID-19 virus and how much we didn't know in the early days. My wife was telling me that she went back and watched one of the YouTubes when the sanctuary was completely empty and I was preaching to a camera. That was so weird. We had a few staff people here and I was just trying to figure out how to preach to nobody being in the sanctuary. It was really a strange time. And ups and downs, and you know, uh, we've heard all the statistics about what's happened to a lot of people on the mental side of mental health and fear and all of these things that, that we could talk about tonight. But if you were a Philippian congregant and you heard that the man that came into town and preached the good news of the gospel was now in prison, and by the way, scholars would argue that his future is unknown to Paul, and to everybody else that loves him. It's known to us. We know that he got out. We know that this was not the end of Paul's life. There was more time. But for all intents and purposes at this moment, there was, Paul might have thought, this is the end of my life. I'm going to stand before the emperor, and he's going to condemn me, and I'm going to die because this is an unknown sect, and the Romans feel threatened by it, and that's what happened at Philippi, and therefore maybe this is the end of my life. Paul didn't know for sure. He said, I'm praying things are going to turn out well. And there's some language in here that seems to indicate that he knew he was going to go on and live, as we'll see at the end of chapter one. But still, a lot of unknowns, a lot of questions. And so in thinking about the prayer, I want to move the idea of discerning things into verse 12, as Paul clarifies. Now, Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, writing to the Philippian church, so just think about that church, just like any church, like our church. We might be wondering what happened to someone that we loved, maybe somebody on the mission field, something like that. We get word back. Uh, they're in prison. And here's what they write to us. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. If you have an ESV, it says, I want you to know, brothers, and you could say brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I wrote something in my Bible just before I came out here. Here's what I wrote. 
Paul is so consumed with the good news of the gospel and its advance that all other problems in his life shrink by comparison. He is so consumed with the good news of Jesus Christ that all other problems in his life, namely that he's in some form of house arrest right now, the problems are dwarfed by the bigger mission of the gospel. And I think that we'd all have to admit that that's probably why so many of us lose sleep at night and, you know, kind of just go up and down and rotate all these things in our mind, all the what ifs, all the things we slice and dice mentally and otherwise, is maybe because we're consumed more about self than we are about the mission of the gospel. And let's be honest. We all wrestle with that. It doesn't matter if you're in a ministry position full-time or you're in some other form of work or whatever it may be. That is the real battle, to keep our eye on the ball, to keep our eye on the prize, to know that we only have a certain window of time to live this life, and we want to be as consumed as we can with the mission that God has put each of us on. And I know that can be tough, especially in our culture. And so Paul is giving us really Romans 8.28 and Philippians 1.12. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. If you've ever heard this passage taught before, Romans 8, 28, all things work together is a single Greek word called synergeo. It's where we get the English idea of synergism. And what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 28 is not that everything is good, with all due respect to those of you who say it's all good all the time, it's, it's really not. Uh, it's not all good. Uh, we, we know tonight, we, we, we watch somebody interviewed in Ukraine, they're not going to say it's all good, right? We, we have our moments, we have our days, we have our situations, and we would say this isn't good. But God is good. And God works, this is the idea, synergistically, all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? That you and I would be conformed into the image of his son, which is the very next verse in Romans 8, 29, which often gets ignored. The setting there is that God's working all things together for good to conform us more into the image of his son. That is what God is up to. And God is getting his mission done on the earth. And there are some things, for those of you who are taking notes, and, you, and I know many of you have wrestled with a lot of these concepts. There are some things that happen in this world from God's point of view simply for the advance of the gospel. And in this case, Paul, the main spokesman of the gospel in the first century, God allows him to experience prison for the advance of the gospel. I don't know if you or I have really factored that in to the whole question of God's will and the problem of evil, the advance of the gospel. But for Paul, that is it. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, here's how he puts it. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. I'm under compulsion. Woe is me, I do, and then he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. Then he he uses that image of running a race. Don't you know that everybody runs in a race, but not everybody wins the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. This was Paul's secret to contentment. We'll read about that in chapter four of Philippians, and that is that he was consumed with Christ and the gospel. I'm going to show you just the ending of Genesis chapter 50. So the very first book of the Old Testament. This is a familiar passage, but this is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. And I, I share it with you for a reminder and your encouragement. It's at the end of the Joseph story, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, spent, some believe, more than a decade in prison, you know, interpreted dreams, and then went from the prison to the penthouse, as it were, and his brothers finally appeared to him. Joseph's revealed who he is and what God has done, and Joseph says to them, 
chapter 50, verse 19 of Genesis. Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? Am I, am I going to judge you? As for you, Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, that is to get the nation of Israel into a place away from famine and into safety, at least at, least at this moment, to preserve many people alive. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God used what you intended for evil for good to bring about a present result. That is to preserve the nation of Israel back to Philippians so that what might finally occur throughout through history, the Messiah would be born from the tribe of Judah. And that's why God protected Israel. Uh, that's not the only reason he loved them, but to bring forth the Messiah who would then save the world. And that's why we're all sitting here tonight. Amen? Because God worked in Joseph's life and God saved Saul, who then went into Europe and preached the gospel. And the gospel finally ends up on the shores of the United States of America. You're born at a certain time in history. You hear the gospel, however you heard it. You come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so it goes. The idea of gospel advance for Paul consumed his life and dwarfed all of his other problems. And there's a third guy I want to bring up. So maybe imagine a conversation in a small Bible study at the church at Philippi and imagine Lydia says, I don't get it. Why is Paul in prison? And imagine the servant girl, formerly demon-possessed. He, he delivered me with a word, and I was delivered from demonic possession. Why would Paul be in prison? And then the Philippian jailer might speak up and say, wait a minute. I met Paul in my prison. Amen? Paul ended up, you know, in the stocks in the Philippian jail, because people were afraid of the gospel being preached and they're bringing all these ideas and so forth. And Paul gets beaten, Paul and Silas, put into the stocks, singing hymns at midnight. And you know the rest of the story, right? The Philippian jailer gets saved. He says famously, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The Philippian jailer might say to Lydia or the formerly demon-possessed servant girl, well, that's how I got saved was Paul was in my prison. God does use prisons, amen? Now, it's not where any of us would want to be. But for Paul, it's all about the advance of the gospel. And here's my question. Is that even on your radar tonight? I hope so. And it's a challenging thought for all of us. I want you to know, says Paul, this is what's happened. Now, to our knowledge of the chronology of Paul's visit to Philippi, which was a short one, and then his departure, it's been about four years since they've seen him. And maybe they heard some rumors. Uh, maybe they heard about Paul being imprisoned. Maybe they wondered if he was already dead. They didn't really know. Then this letter arrived and certainly would have comforted their hearts, but um, Paul is going to assure them that gospel advancement is going on. In fact, the word for advancement is in the Greek is to move forward. This is what the gospel is doing. It speaks of a pioneer advance. It's a Greek military term referring to an army of engineers who go before troops in the military to open up new territory. That is that they would go and clear out brush and trees so that the military army could advance. And that's what Paul has said. My circumstances have paved a way, opened up a path for the gospel. You say, well, what kind of path? What has actually happened? Well, here's a further explanation. So that my imprisonment, 113 of Philippians, in Christ, literally the cause of Christ, if you have the New American Standard, is added by the translators. It just literally reads, my imprisonment is in Christ. But it, it makes sense. The way that they've rendered it from Greek to English is, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ or the cause of the gospel has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. It's become evident, New King James or clear NIV, to the whole palace guard 
and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. That's the new King James Version. My imprisonment is literally in Christ, and it's become phaneris in Greek, apparent, recognizable, plain, evident that I'm not a wrongdoer. No, no, no. That namely, I'm in prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The Greek word for the palace guard is transliterated as the praetorian. It can denote either a special building, for example, a commander's headquarters or an emperor's palace, or the group of men in the imperial guard. These praetorian guards were likely those who protected, get this, Caesar himself. They were an elite squad. They received double pay. They were kind of hand-picked soldiers. Some of the commentators that look at history at this time say there were about nine or 10,000 of them. And then their numbers uh, grew a little bit uh, under Augustus uh, and then uh, under Vitellius. They increased about 16,000. So just think of an elite force of Roman soldiers that were honored with double pay, good pension, special duties, They guarded the emperor himself, but also on special occasions, they would guard imperial prisoners. So here's Paul under house arrest. He's appealed to Caesar in the book of Acts. We read about this in chapter 24 and 25. And then we get an explanation of what he's up to in chapter 28. We read that in the introduction. But Paul had a certain amount of freedom. People were coming to Paul. This is the very end of the book of Acts. And he was freely able to share the gospel. But here's what was happening. The Roman guards that guarded Paul would be chained to him, literally, and chained, I think it was either every four or six hours. So every time Paul got a new guard, guess what opportunity he got? To share the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was both probably direct sharing and indirect. Because remember, there were people coming to Paul's location because he couldn't leave. But they were coming to him and Paul was preaching Jesus Christ from the Old Testament from the morning until the evening. So you can imagine the guards were getting an earful because they were on the clock. They had no other option but to listen to Paul, share his testimony over and over again, share the truths of the gospel, share his revelations from the Lord into the truth of the gospel. Can you imagine? They're getting a seminary education four to six hours a day. And every time they changed over, I think the apostle Paul stretched a little bit, went, all right, Lord, (laughs) here's another shot at another guard. How else would Paul be able to reach in to Caesar's world with the good news of the gospel unless the Lord had allowed this to occur? No one would have ever thought of this. A means of evangelism into the Roman leadership through Paul's imprisonment? I mean, if Paul is thinking in practical terms, remember the guy traveled everywhere. You ever looked at his missionary journeys? Up and down, red lines, black lines, yellow lines, up, down, back, forth, rivers, mountains, robbers, you name it. Hanging on to wreckage in the sea to get the gospel to another soul, going on islands, etc., to get the gospel out. And now he's imprisoned. And you know, the natural reaction on a human level would be, you gotta be kidding me, Lord. This, how could this be your will? You've got me traveling everywhere to share the gospel, and now you got me chained in some location to these guards. But this is what this was God's plan. God is the great exploiter of evil circumstances for good purposes. However, they come about. And I know we all theologically wrestle with some of these concepts. And God's, you know, we might call God's particular sovereignty. uh, Is he over every single action that ever takes place on the planet? Or does he allow a certain amount of free will and then take that and exploit it for his purposes because he's just so majestic in his nature? There's different views. Good people disagree. But here's the bottom line. God has taken Paul's circumstance and turned it for the advance of the gospel. Amen? Amen. And the guards couldn't get away. (laughs) And so Paul was probably preaching to them night and day and day and night. And here's how we know the result. Flip over to Philippians 4. Take a look at the very end of the letter. The second to the last verse says these words. Paul's doing some final greetings, and he says, 422. All the saints greet you, 
especially those of who? Caesar's household. Through this imprisonment, the gospel has reached into Caesar's family. That is amazing. Now, when Paul made his appeal to Caesar, he was, uh, back to chapter one, he was doing it because obviously they wanted to beat him without a trial and all of that. He made his appeal uh, on a legal basis as a Roman citizen, but could he have imagined that God would use this time to reach into Caesar's own palace, if you will, through the guards that guarded the, uh, you could say, the, the leading family? And here's another interesting insight. Now, Paul wrote several letters in his first Roman imprisonment, which includes Ephesians. One of the things that he wrote in Ephesians is a whole treatment on something called the armor of God. Do you know where he got that, those concepts from? Sitting with Roman elite guards, looking at their garb, and then writing metaphors into our spiritual uh, provisions from God. Amen? I do think that there are some references back to some of the Old Testament imagery of the high priest as well. But I think Paul's main metaphor for the armor of God is pulled from this experience sitting next to a Roman guard and probably being able, you know, you're chained to the guy, so you're going to study what he's got on, right? And uh, all of a sudden, the Lord uses that to bring teaching that has blessed people for two millennia. Amen? God works all things together for good to those who love him and those who are called according to his purposes. Amen? God is good. Now, not everything that happens is good, but God is good. And Paul will say in 2 Timothy 2.9, in his last letter he ever wrote, and this time he won't get out, he says, the word of God is not chained. 2 Timothy 2.9 in the NIV I may be wearing a physical chain, Paul might say, right now, but I'm free in Christ. And he might say to a guard, you think you're free, but actually you are chained, enslaved by sin. You can't get away from that reality. Paul might say, this is who I used to be. I persecuted these people to the death. But he shared over and over again with these Roman guards, and Boyce puts it this way in his wonderful commentary on Philippians. He says, the witness of a life lived for Christ even in the midst of suffering, can spread to others. You may have chains of your own. You may be tied to a desk when you'd like to be out in more direct Christian service. You may be tied to a home, especially when the children are young and in need of constant care. You may be tied to a sickness and may never see beyond a hospital room. This should not be cause for discouragement. If you are in circumstances like these, and there are many other versions of these, this has been given to you by God or at least allowed by God and can be used by him. You can bear witness to people who come by your desk, your kitchen sink, and even your hospital bed. If you do, God will bless your efforts. You will see spiritual fruit. What is more, it will entirely change the way that you look at your limitations, whatever their cause may be. You can learn to say with Paul, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We have a gentleman, he since went up to work at the Hume Lake uh, Christian camp, but his name is Scott McDonald, and I haven't talked to him for a long time. But he went through a back surgery, and it was really difficult, um, spent some time in the hospital. And he gave me elements of this story I just wanted to share with you. So recovering from a surgery, and uh, here's what the hospital workers began to say to Scott. Why is it that all these people visiting you seem to shine? They're all Hume Lake employees come to encourage him post-surgery. They all smile and seem to be so peaceful and happy. Why is that? Scott replied, because we all have the same thing, Jesus. Well, I don't want this guy to pray for me. Uh, a person in the next bed said, would you pray for me? I see what God's doing in your life. I don't need some hospital chaplain or priest to pray for me. Would you pray for me? Because I want what you got. Now, Scott's laying in a hospital bed recovering from surgery, something that he didn't want to go through, but God is exploiting it for his good purposes. Unbelievers are often reached through things that we consider to be chains in our lives. So, you know, you might have a situation right now where you feel a little bit chained. 
but God can use it and does use it. And I think directly and indirectly, God was doing a work in the Roman guards and for that matter, other individuals as well. Why the chains, God? Why did this have to happen? Why me? None of that from Paul. We would understand it if he wrote it. Uh, I've, I've done it more times than I'd like to admit. Whether I verbalized it or said it in my mind, why this? Why now? Why, why, why? You know, when your kids are small, you can die from whyitis. Did you guys know that? You know that, right? Why, why, why? <laughs> That's when parents just come up with the line, because I said so. <laughs> anyway, my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Who could have thought that the Lord would send his son into the world to die on a terrible Roman cross? How could it be? That's why the disciples were so confused because in their mind they thought that David is, has come back to restore the kingdom of Israel. He's gonna sit on David's throne, the greater David, the Messiah has come. And then he dies on a cross? And then the women come and tell the disciples, he's risen from the dead. And they're like, oh, you, you, you ladies have lost it, man. And here's another thing that he says, and that most of the brethren, now this would be believers who were ministering to Paul, with Paul. He had a certain amount of freedom under house arrest, 14. That most of the, breathers, uh, the brethren, so you can see now, uh, witnessing to unbelievers who are being converted as we saw in chapter four. And the brethren, now most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord, I love the King James, it says, waxing confident because of my imprisonment have what? Far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Believers were watching what was happening to Paul and saying, well, if Paul can do it in chains, then I can do it when I go to the market or when I go you know, to coach, or when I go over here, or I'm at a family dinner, or I, I meet my neighbor walking their dog, or whatever it may be. I can share the gospel too. And the church began to wax more confident. It's amazing what one bold person can do to other timid people. Amen? You watch somebody step up and not be ashamed of the gospel, and all of a sudden you say, I can do that too. And look, we all need it. We all need that shot in the arm. I remember uh, we were out by Corona High School and we were handing out uh, the, some DVDs that were sharing the truth about the pro-life uh, arguments and sharing the gospel. And we're handing them out and some of the high schoolers were running and a gentleman from our congregation who's a wonderful brother in the Lord and, and is not here at, uh, at this time, but uh, he came out with me and we were handing out these DVDs and trying to share the gospel with Corona High School students. And he, and I, I, he said to me, how could I not be here? My pastor's out here. If my pastor's gonna be out here, how can I not be out here? And I thought, well, that, that is the power of an example, right? That's the power of, of just somebody just saying, uh, you know what? I, I believe that God will honor the, these efforts. And there is that example of just you know, you watch somebody and all of a sudden you get more bold because you watch them do it. And it's not that complicated to share the good news of the gospel, amen? I mean, if ever the time was right, if ever the fields were white unto harvest, brethren, do we need anything else to share the good news? Do, do we need anything else to finally broach the topic with that coworker? Do, do we need anything else to finally say to someone that we love and care about, can I just, would you just give me five minutes to share the good news of the gospel? I've told you the story before, but I grew up in a Roman Catholic household and uh, we, we had a, a, a foundation of truth and certainly was, you know, uh, privy to the gospel and, and truth about the Lord, but uh, not sure I was in a personal relationship with him. And I got saved and I became a Christian pastor and my mom was used to the Roman Catholic Church. And so when my mom first came to the church, we were meeting in a warehouse. And one of the first things that my mom said to me was, there's no cross 
on the wall behind you. Why is there no cross back there? And I was like, well, Mom, uh, that's, that's really not the most important thing is <laughs> that there's a physical cross back there. And we began to talk. But one day, I uh, wanted to share with my mom the gospel, of course, because I love her and she may be watching right now. And uh, I locked the doors. We pulled into my driveway in a car. I locked the doors and I said, Mom, you're going to listen to me preach the gospel to you. And she told me that she had opened her heart to the Lord and stuff. And then following that, I don't know how long afterwards, it was an Easter Sunday. I had preached on the resurrection, of course. Uh, I had given an invitation. People had walked down uh, and they were beneath the pulpit kind of like this. And I looked down and my mom was standing there. And my mom uh, was crying and, you know, she made it official that day. And that was a beautiful moment. Amen. You can clap for that. Now, Paul will say, it's not all good news. Here's verse 15, and we're only going to go up to 18. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from what? Envy. This is the idea of ill will or jealousy. And strife, which is simply contention or quarreling, but some from goodwill. Now, with all this preaching going on and everybody getting bold and good stuff happening, Paul says, now, nah, I got to qualify something. <laughs> Not everybody is preaching from positive, loving motives. Now, it's almost incredible to think that someone would be motivated to preach from ill will. What would be going on there? What could we try to discern from this kind of information? I think this is what was happening. I think people in the Roman church, remember Paul's in Rome now, who were leaders there became jealous of Paul. Here's probably how it happened. Paul's doing missionary work all over the place. God's using him in mighty ways. His desire was to bless the Roman church as well. But Rome has its own congregation and it's established. Paul comes into town. And what do other spiritual leaders do? Well, many of them felt encouraged, certainly. But others felt probably threatened. This may surprise you. But spiritual leaders are not always <laughs> wonderfully uh, celebrating the wonderful blessings that are happening in other people's ministries. That may disappoint you. But the truth is that pastors and spiritual leaders are humans. And sometimes when they watch other ministries being blessed, they kind of go like this. Russian, 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 Russian. Why is, why, why is he being blessed and not us? And, then... and they may not even say it out loud. But there is a jealousy in fact, there's a running joke that when pastors get together, the first thing they ask each other is, how many people go to your church? And that, as if that is the measurement of success, right? Because that's worldly success. It's all about numbers. So I heard a, I heard a pastor say that now whenever he's asked that question, he responds with, well, we have 15 to 20,000 people going to the church. And usually it's always saucers because, you know, the average church in America is about 70, 75 people. And so the eyes get big and he says, he doesn't always clarify, but what he means is we have between 15, one five, dash, and 20,000 people. Do you see what's happening here? <laughs> he doesn't clarify it just to get a little bit of a, whoa. Because there is something in the human mind. And I will tell you that a famous pastor who has fallen and fallen hard was quoted as saying that he could not receive counsel from other pastors because he had the biggest church in the area. And somebody came to him when he was about to go into flames, and he did, and said to him, you need to get counsel from other pastors and other mature leaders. And he, kept, and he said, I can't receive from that guy because my church is bigger than his. Now tell me if that's not a red flag. Tell me if that, you know, I feel, I feel bad for hockey goalies. Every time they get scored on, woo, woo, 
that's got to be a terrible thing. You got to want to shrink into your pads or something, you know? But he said, that's literally what he said. I can't receive. So listen to this. I heard a, a gentleman and he said, look, uh, over the years, he said, I've been pastoring for decades and our church has gone up to 700 and down to 300 and we've never had any major issues and we're right around four or 500 people. And he goes, this is what I believe. I believe that the Lord has wired me to pastor four to 500 people. And I'm where he has me. And it's not that I don't want the church to grow, but he said, I believe every time we seem to get above that number, he brings us back down. And maybe that's just where he has us. But I will say this, this I'm quoting another pastor. He said, I have plenty that I can share with other pastors about ministry because it does, you don't have to be at a thousand or more to, to be able to be credible. Do you understand? This is what goes on in the Christian world. And, and I will tell you, it's not the stuff that we're proud of. And I, I was reading a commentator this week who said, it is difficult to get Christian churches to partner on just about anything in a city. We, can't, we can barely get five or more pastors to pray over this city together. Now, it used to be a little bit different I will say in earlier days, and I think I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to my brothers. I will say that a lot of them are just really busy and it's difficult for them to fit it in. There's a lot of demands in the ministry, but I'll say this. Do you know the, the guys that normally show up to those things? They're they are pastoring small Pentecostal churches and they're almost at everything we do. But when we try to get some of the larger churches to participate, it's It's difficult. And to give the benefit of the doubt, maybe they're just busy or whatever. But this writer went on to say that the only thing we can seem to partner on is crusades happening in our city or near our city. He, he said, but even with that, sometimes people take exception even to that form of evangelism and don't agree with it. And so they oppose it. And so if you're wondering, how could it be that some people were preaching the gospel out of ill will? Here's what I think is happening. I think people in the Roman church leadership saw Paul in prison and probably did a number like this. And this is kind of what happens in the word faith movement. There's no way that God can be blessing Paul if he's in prison. Because no preacher who's blessed by God is gonna be in a prison cell, brothers and sisters. Take that to the bank. They're gonna be flying in their second jet that they ripped off the people of God to get. They won't say that, but do you get my point? I think people saw an opening, and, I, and, I, and I'm telling you, this is the ugliest stuff in human nature. I think they saw an opening to run Paul down, to accuse him of not being in the center of God's will, and try to step into a power position. And that is sad, but I'll tell you, in the business world, in Hollywood, in the sports world, Anytime an opening comes, we can feel bad for that person for a minute or two, but all of a sudden, what do we like to see? There's an opening for my favorite person. Oh, yeah. Outside and inside the church. And that's why Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember how we laid out the theme verses for Philippians? who although being in very form God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant. We're going to study this on Sunday, the law of the bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and he laid down his rights. The king of heaven. That's why Paul argues in Philippians 2 the way he does. Let this mind be in you. What are we doing? Why are these guys preaching from ill will, trying to step into a gap, running me down as though I'm not in God's will because I'm in a prison cell? Why? Because they don't have the mind of Christ. And before I point my finger at someone else, I tell you, it challenges me to the core that I have to have the mindset of Jesus Christ I have to put others as more important than myself. I can't look only for my own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How countercultural that is. How against it is. Self magazine. Self. 
I want to read that. Self. Right? And it permeated the, the mindset of Christians. And I'm going to make the point that these are not heretics. These are not false teachers who are doing this. They're preaching the biblical gospel with the wrong motive. He says the latter, the people who do it out of love, uh, do it out of love or they do it for right motives. Let's go back to uh, verse 15 just so we can set the context one more time. He says, some also from goodwill, that's the latter group. The latter do it out of love, knowing, what do they know? That I'm appointed for the defense. That's apologia again where we get apologetics. The apologia of the gospel. Now they know that I'm in prison and the Lord's using it for his divine plan. So they're lovingly stepping into gaps. Paul's off the field, so they stepped onto the field. They're preaching. They're not embarrassed by Paul's chains. They love Paul. They love God. They love Paul. And they've stepped up into a gap. And that is the beauty of this latter group. Motivated by the love of God and the love of Paul. They know what's happening. They can see God's hand working through the Praetorian Guard and through people who come to visit Paul and their intentions are good. The former, group A, the negative here, the former proclaimed Christ out of what? Selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. The idea of selfish ambition there is a Greek word which means to desire to put oneself forward. It literally means canvassing for office, partisanship. It's one who would put themselves forward and do whatever it takes to win political office. And I don't have to tell you how ugly political ads get. What's the typical MO of a political ad? You run the other person down so much so that the people will vote for you. And this apparently is what they were doing. They're running Paul down so much, jockeying for position. The, the latter group did, stepped into a gap. And I know many of you have done that over your life. And you know, maybe you see a need in this ministry or over here and you stepped in. And that's beautiful. Motiva motivated by love. But the other group, motivated by selfish ambition, personal jealousy, trying to grab a spot, trying to grab notoriety or whatever their reasons or motives were. But their motives are certainly judged here. They weren't doing it from pure motives. They did it for selfish ambition, 17, and to cause Paul more distress. And Paul had no hair to pull out because historically we're told he was bald. I just thought I'd throw that in just... Anyway, sadly, it was Christians slamming their brother. Perhaps they were threatened or territorial, and they were making the situation for Paul worse. You would expect this from the Roman guards, not from fellow church leaders. But I will tell you, and this is to prepare some of you for reality, that some of your biggest disappointments will come from professing Christians. And I hate to say it, but it's true. Some of your biggest disappointments, in fact, it's why a lot of people are not in a church tonight. Amen? You can say amen to negative news, by the way. It just means we agree. So, amen? You know when you're out there talking to people, you know why they haven't darkened the door of a church in a decade? The guy had the fish on his business card, but then he didn't do work the right way and ripped me off. Well, my cousin over here invited me to go to church, and I started going, and he cheated on his wife. Oh, my coworker over here uh, was preaching the gospel and handing out gospel tracts, and then I fi find out that he embezzled a bunch of money from the company, and on and on and on it goes. And then they flip on the TV to hopefully see some genuine Christianity. <laughs> And all God's people said, oh, no. Because while there are good, solid pastors on Christian television, about every other program makes me go, oh, no. If that is their perception of us, we in trouble, right? 
And so this is what was going on, a kick them when they're down attitude. And it was coming from believers. So what does Paul do with this? All of a sudden, our Bible study moved from such a wonderful celebration, people waxing bold, praetorian guards getting saved, permeating Caesar's household to, oh, bummer. So what do you think Paul did? I mean, this is the guy that says in chapter four, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice while he's in chains. What's he gonna do with this situation? Check it out, final verse. What then? For what? Or what are we to think is the language only that everywhere, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Praise God. The guy is living what he teaches. Now, he had a moment <laughs> while he was writing it. Man, a bummer. It was tough. Just like the psalmist, kind of going up and down sometimes, right? Undulations, remember undulations, Psalm 31? But Paul goes back to what he knows. He's driven by the bigness of gospel advance. And he goes, here's what he says. Not only, not only is all this cool stuff happening in the Caesar's household, but even though people are preaching from impure motives, they're preaching everywhere. Even though they want to steal my spot, the gospel's getting out, and in this I will rejoice. Amen? Are you a half glass empty or half glass full kind of person? I think Paul is the glass is half full. And he says, hey, the gospel's going out. Now, just so I can make this solid in your mind. If the group of individuals was preaching a false gospel, Paul would not have rejoiced. Because in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, he says to the Galatian church, if anyone preaches another gospel, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven or anybody else, even if we did it, let him be under the divine curse. I said it once, I'll say it again. If anybody preaches any other gospel than the one that we have preached to you, let him be anathema. These men were preaching the true gospel. As one writer put it, they weren't anti-Christ, they were anti-Paul. Their motives were wrong, but the true gospel was going out. Just so you understand what's going on here, because no person like Paul and no biblically thinking Christian would ever rejoice in a false gospel. Paul is not saying, I'm so happy that there's so many preachers butchering the gospel. Nope. He's not saying that. He's saying they're preaching the true gospel. Their motives are wrong, but they're preaching the truth, and I'll rejoice in that. Paul would never rejoice in a false gospel. So if you hear somebody tell you, well, God will work all the doctrinal matters out. You know, at least the guy's up there preaching. It's not good if he's butchering everything and leading people astray. Most every New Testament book is written to counter false doctrine. Amen? And a redefinition of the gospel. So don't buy that for a second. Paul would never rejoice in that. He's rejoicing that the gospel is being preached in its purity and power. However, he knows the motives are in question. But he'll rejoice that the gospel is getting out. That's the difference. And that's what we can rejoice in. Father, thank you for your living word. And thank you for this section of the book of Philippians. And, you know, we, we're going to circle back to the title, Progress Through Problems. And it's namely gospel progress through problems. And thank you for Paul's big heart. Thank you for the hearts of people who are here tonight, those who are watching, those who will watch this later. Thank you that when our faith is tested, it gets perfected. When we go through tests, we end up with a testimony, Lord. And that was Paul. And all of a sudden, his life had become consumed with the gospel. And the testing of his faith was maturing him, but it was also, it was causing other people to hear and believe the gospel. It was progressing. And that is our passion, Lord. Help us to be as singularly focused as we can be in the hour in which we live. It's tough, 
but help us to think about, pray about gospel advance as much as possible because we know you so love the world that you sent your son on that saving mission and Paul met him on the road to Damascus and he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And Jesus, you said, I'm gonna show this man how much he must suffer for me, but he'll be my instrument before kings and governors and the Gentiles and the Jewish people to bring the gospel, the truth, And Father, thank you for living truth. Thank you for this wonderful congregation. There are many here that are facing challenges. Some of them are because they are Christians, simply because they're believers. Some of them have been because they've preached to others. And praise the Lord if that's the reason. Woe to us if all people speak well of us. We're gonna rock the boat sometimes, Lord, if we preach the true gospel. Help us to be winsome, loving, Help us to see opportunities, even if we feel like we're in some chains at the moment. Uh, Would you exploit those situations, Lord, for the progress of the gospel and even for our good? Because that's what Romans 8.28 says. You'll work it together for good. And we're so grateful that you are good, even when everything around us is not necessarily good. But we have so much to be grateful for, Lord, tonight. So many blessings To live in the country we live in with all of its problems is still a great blessing. We have freedom. We've come to church tonight. We got in our car. We got here. We're going to go home. Uh, For most of us, we're we're in good shape in terms of just the basics. Um, We're just so blessed. And help us, Lord, to make the most of our time, as Ephesians 5 puts it, because the days, they are evil but help us to make the most of opportunity and every opportunity. And also, Father, just to drink in blessings uh, that come from heaven down to us. We're so grateful. So would you bless and fill your people and strengthen them? And if you haven't met this Jesus who can give you peace in the midst of your storm, he can break the chains, the spiritual chains in your life. Ask him to save you tonight. If you are a prodigal and you need to come home, Or if you've been off mission, maybe you'll be motivated to get back on. Whatever the Lord might be saying to you, if you need to ask him in for the first time, if you're watching via live stream, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me. Thank you for dying on that terrible cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. I trust you. I repent of my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior, my King, my God. If you're a Christian, I pray the Lord will give you renewed strength tonight blessings overflowing in your life, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, all God's people say.